Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We are continuing on on this lovely spring day in Chicago in our series called Unstuck. And today, in each of these weeks, we've been talking about uh, spiritual formation, not just about a self-help concept, but as the idea of being continuously shaped as somebody who's dedicated to following the Lord, a continual walk. And wherever we are on the spectrum of any of these topics, there's just so much grace and hope to know that there is continual formation that's taking place in our lives. And so today what we're talking about is the move in the life of the Christian, specifically in the life of the Christ follower, from false to true identity. Now, there's a lots of ways to approach the topic of identity. And in a lot of ways, we've been hitting on this concept about our truest identity um, as Christians um, throughout this whole series, who we are becoming, that identity that is still being formed in us collectively and individually. So uh, this sort of has a lot to do with things we're already talking about. But today, specifically, we want to talk about core identity for those who call ourselves Christian or little Christs. That's what that name initially meant. It's Christ followers, the people of God, men, women, and children made in the very image of God. Because specifically for today, this topic of identity is a huge one in our culture, way beyond uh, faith alone. It's this idea that's at the core of a lot of us in the human experience to find out uh, what's, what's my truest self, my most authentic me, etc. The, the know yourself, the self-assessment tests, how do you identify in the world? And those things are really good, but specifically, again, we're talking now in the life of the Christ follower. What's my truest self? Because even within the Christian world, there are a ton of books, conferences, resources, etc. on this topic. The identity as Christ followers. Why is that? I believe that there is a huge amount of content on this because we feel the pull of secondary identities. And we know in faith that God has something more, but honestly, we can struggle to actually experience that which we believe should be our core identity, our, our core self. We struggle to feel that, to really experience our truest self. That's why I think there are so many um, resources out there to help us. And why do we struggle so much? I think the experience of living that truest Christian God-honoring identity is hard because of the demands of our life and the allure of culture towards other identities. Okay, what do I mean really quickly about that? Number one is the demands. All the things that marketing, jobs, people, society as a whole tell us we ought to be, all the things that we need to be more of. We should be more this or that. We should do, we should accomplish by this time. So these are demands that are sort of silently in on us all the time, whispering what we ought to be. But the second is the allure. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's the piece that we, we feel tempted into being formed into something. A, a lot of marketing tells us uh, the allure of different identities. These are all of those, you know, 10 steps to a better you, more fit, 
more relevant, more Instagram followers, more fashionable, more powerful in your workplace, whatever it is, all of these, the allure. And one of the things I've noticed about these, these kind of things, the goal is really ill-defined. It's just bore, more influent. There's no landing place, more wealthy. Is there ever a landing place? No, these are ill-defined goals, but the allure of the more is something that we feel very much. They're ever-moving goals, but they're always there. So because we can feel the demands of our world and the allure of other identities, it can be hard to feel like we really experience our core identity as Christ followers. So just start for a minute with our context now, something that I observe might be informative as you even think about what's my truest self? What is my, my um, core identity, the center of my identity? If we were to have just met, my introduction of myself in this culture, in this context, this day and age that we live in now, may go something like this. I am Melissa. I am a pastor and a student. I have a husband, three kids, and two pets. And you notice that with each of these things, I say my name, which is good. I say what I do. That's a big second that comes in right after our name. What I do is what I'm really about. And then who's around my little sphere of existence? Who hangs out around my epicenter of me, my husband, my kids, and my wild pets? That's who's in my epicenter of my life. In other places and times, I'm not knocking this. It's not like I'm going to say we got to change this. I just want us to observe this subtle impact of this truth. In other times and places, my introduction would say, I come from the Munn clan of northern Michigan. I'm married into the Pillman clan of central Illinois. I am a wife, a stepmom a mom, a friend, a niece. It's all in relation to another person, who I am in relation to somebody else's center. That's just a fact of the way that we can introduce ourselves. What am I in relation to others would be my core identifiers. So in our world, there is a lot of self at center and what we do. That's huge emphasis. What we do instead of who we are and whose we are. So who are we? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 149, 14. Whose are we? We're God's workmanship. Ephesians 2.11, or 2.10, excuse me. So why do we fall, fail to live according to our truest identity as beloved children of God? So a couple things to consider on why this might be happening, but some things are easier to own about ourselves than other things. We already talked about this in the previous weeks, but what about those identities that other people have spoken over you? We grab onto that and we make that some of our core pieces of our identity. I was thinking this week for whatever reason, I was in communication with my high school friends, which is really fun. I have this group of women, we've been friends since we were five. We went K through 12 together. We still get together for lunch sometimes. Anyway, that made me think, what were some of the things I was when they first knew me? Those names we put on ourselves or that our culture, our high school in this case, put on ourselves. Well, you're the jock. You're the smart one. You're the bookworm. Uh, you're the popular one. You're the um, shy one. Whatever it is, those names. Sometimes we need to break our context and go out into the working world or to a college or something to break that and have a chance to say, I'm going to re-identify. I don't want to be the class clown anymore. 
You have to have something happen to change because it was so easy for you to take on that identity and really decide that that, that that was the truest thing of who you were. So that's something we talked about before, those messages from our past. But I even noticed that sometimes we're so much faster to claim an identity over ourselves, um, some identities over others. I have this, it's silly, but just stay with me for a minute. I have this example. Years ago, for Mother's Day, my stepson gave me a, a pear tree to plant in our garden at our little cabin in the woods outside of the city. And so we got two apple trees and two pear trees, and they were the size of sticks. And we put them in the garden, we planted them, and it was, that, was my, that was my stepmother garden. That's what we called it. And I walked away from the garden, and I looked at Andy, and I said, I'm an orchardist. Just like that, I had sticks in the sand and I was willing to say I was an orchardist now because I had an orchard and I was gonna make it thrive. It still, by the way, does not bear fruit, but the plants have leaves and so we're still hanging on. But I was so willing to say this idea of this fun thing I am and yet how many things are we not so quick to say? We have to arrive to a certain place before we're willing to say I'm an artist, I'm a gymnast. We have to get to a certain place. We won't say that at the first gymnastics class. Why not? Well, I think the same thing happens when it comes to our idea of being a follower of Christ. We feel like we have to get somewhere before we say we're following. Why can't we show up messy and as we are and say, I am a follower of Christ, saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. That's what we are, but there's something in us that says we have to arrive at the fruit-bearing part before we can say we're the orchardist, and that's not true. So I think there are some labels that we hinder to say. We are beloved children of God, for that is who we are. We see that in 1 John 3, verse 1. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. We're children of God, no matter how messy or unsure or full of doubt or sin we are. And so some of these things, if you've been to church for any amount of time, you know these things. And you're saying, Melissa, I know. But I just want to tell you guys, just, just hear it again. Sometimes you know, but you don't really let it seep in. At least that's true of me. So if I'm just preaching to me, that's fine. But I also want you to remember that there are people who check out what this church life is, and they need to know they don't need to be dressed up before they show up. Because when you are a Christ follower, you come exactly as you are, saved by grace through faith, and that's it. So this whole identity, this truest identity, I am a beloved child of God. Sometimes we're just tough on ourselves. It's hard to accept the extravagant, unmerited love of God. All of this grace, unmerited love, as a free gift, as we already are. We want to be all the things, and we want to be better in all the areas. And improvement is great. We were talking about that, right? Spiritual formation. Yes, it's great. But here's another thing I want to point out that I've noticed in people before. Have you ever sat with somebody who's wishing they were more something else, whatever the thing is? Maybe they're wildly organized and they're just wishing they were spontaneous. Well, you, maybe you're not gonna be both. I remember years and years ago, part of this community, I was in a mom's group, Gigi was a baby. And we were all sitting around talking and realizing that we all had the same tape going differently. We were really deep in life together in all the messiness of motherhood at the time. 
And we all, in this one conversation, it just came to light. We were all saying things like, I wish I was spontaneous like Jen and organized like Tasha and creative like Leslie and reliable like Veronica. We took these amazing traits from each woman and we wish we were all the things until we'd made this ridiculous notion of motherhood that nobody's gonna be all those things. And I love, I told you guys, if you ever want to see one of the books that I'm quoting, I'll try to remember to bring them with me. I love this quote by Brennan Manning in the Ragamuffin Gospel. He says this, the trouble with our ideals is that if we live up to all of them, we become impossible to live with. Isn't that true? The tilted halo of the saved sinner is worn loosely and with easy grace. All that we as a church would be able to embrace each other that way and not always asking ourselves to be the perfect everything before we're willing to claim our identity as beloved by the Father. The fact is, we're many, many things. We are many faceted beings. So the question here today is not to find what, your, what your, all your things are and what you're doing best. It's to ask the question, what things in the life of the believer do we give primacy to? What's our primary thing we give not only to ourselves, but to others? As I was thinking about this, I started thinking about the labels that we give. Interestingly enough, in school right now, we're reading the Gospels like really quickly. We're doing like a Gospel a week. And so I've been deep in the parable after parable, all these stories. The New Testament Gospels give so many labels on people. They do it all the time. Can you guys think of it? When they, when they say, for example, uh, you know, a Roman soldier approached Jesus, that's packed with information intentionally. What does that tell you? That a Roman approached this Jewish man, a soldier who was in a position of military might came and asked a favor. What does that mean? A woman with the issue of blood came and touched his robe. A woman, that's loaded. An issue of blood that would have deep meaning about uh, uh, cleanliness rituals and how she came sneaky up instead of out front. The, all throughout scripture and in the New Testament, there are these labels. So I started to think, why, why are they giving these, these labels to people in these moments? Why is it so important? In the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we talk about who the person is as they approach the injured man who their identifier is. If, they are, if they're a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, or, or a Samaritan, they, they stick a label on there because it matters. It's full of uh, hidden, not so hidden, but important cultural meaning, and it's meant to tell us a lot. It informs the story and therefore the twists that we hear in these teachings of Jesus. So I thought about it for today. What does that mean for us in the church now? What labels do we put on other people? What do we say is the primary thing about you or you? Sometimes I hear us do it actually quite often with denominations. We might say somebody is, um, uh, well, you know, they're Lutheran or they're Catholic, or they're charismatic. And when you say a word, it's supposed to mean a lot of things in your mind. But it doesn't necessarily mean something. What if we said, that, uh, brother or sister in Christ, they, they believe, uh, they're, they're believers, and they're in the capital C church with us. So we do it with denominations. We do it with politics. We got out of the political election season. We talked about politics a lot. But how often do you just need to inform somebody somebody's political 
position and you assume that you've just said mountains about what that person should now think about the person you just were explaining about because you said if they were left or right, red or blue, Republican or Democrat. We do it all the time and we're infusing meaning but those meanings don't always translate to the recipient to know what it is that we think we're saying about a person. But there's a lot of other descriptors. There's a lot of things that we will speak as the primary thing about a person who is with us in the church. Again, we're saying that today we're talking about Christians in the church. This is not always the case. We, don't, we, we aren't always uh, rooted in this. But for today, I think this is important for us to consider. I've been reading this author, uh, it, Forgive me, I've forgotten his first name. His last name is Yarhouse. I just finished his book, uh, Homosexuality and the Christian, and I'm about to start Emerging Gender Identities. And so he's a sociologist and just really having a lot of learning about what it means to hold on to what we believe in, a, uh, in the Christian church, about God's ideal for marriage and all of that, but how quick we can be for within the church to be labeling somebody first based on their... Uh, uh, attraction or orient, sexual orientation before uh, their, their primary identity is a brother or sister in Christ. What labels do we put when we decide to say that somebody is their orientation before their faith? Or, for example, a friend of mine years ago, she'd gone through a divorce, and she had processed through that. Um, don't get me wrong. It, it, divorce is a, is a fractured thing where healing needs to come. She'd gone through that years before she was in a, a suburb, so it was like those huge churches with all the big groups. And she was debating, uh, Melissa, which group fits me most? Should I go into the divorced group or the women's group? And I said, well, what, what do you want to be identified as which do you give primacy to? Which is first for you? That you're a divorced Christian or that you're a female daughter of God? And it wasn't a decider. Maybe you need to work through that one thing, but what label do you give or do you have people put on you that you want to be the first thing? Because the fact is, in these New Testament scriptures, sometimes... They give a label, and it's an important piece to understand a person's story. So what I'm suggesting isn't that uh, identifying certain things about our story are wrong at all. What I'm saying is what's the truest thing about you, and from there, what other information is helpful? Why have I prioritized this description about a person? Am I assuming it communicates something like the Gospels do about another person? Why is saying Christ follower not enough? Now listen, here's why I say this. Sometimes there's more to the story that can be communicated, and that's good. Sometimes an additional descriptor is informative. Right now we are celebrating uh, Asian American Pacific Islander um, month to honor people who's in the news right now. Our friends who are in this community are being horribly targeted. So if we're talking about a friend who's Vietnamese and her experience, that matters. Saying that this is her experience and that part of that comes from, from um, her ethnicity, her place of origin, that matters. So those labels, it's not a bad thing. Do you hear what I'm trying to differentiate? But if we're saying something just because we think it gives a really important thing, then that's not as honoring. So for another example that came to my mind, so one was, you know, a friend who's Vietnamese trying to navigate the news right now. That 
her descriptor matters. Another one is I was telling a super silly story, you guys. This is where I was just being, I'm, I'm confessing me being an idiot one day, okay? This is the category this is under. I was with a group of uh, coworkers, and I was telling a really silly story about our alley uh, construction crew dug up a foundation of a house and they upended a rat's nest. And I had a couple of horrible encounters with rats in a row. So what do I do? I call the city. I called 311 and I was like, help, rats. And I was telling this silly story about me and rats and he just looked at me and he's a black man. He said, the last time I called 311 and he told me his story and I was, <gasps> it mattered that he was a black man and I was a white middle-aged woman calling about rats. He was calling about a break-in and our experiences were entirely different. Sometimes the descriptors matter, but the core thing that I want to ask, because it's honoring to a person's experience, is what is our motivation in putting a label on someone and putting a descriptor on them? Is it to spread information or to honor and to give more information and context about their experience so we can hear the truest thing about them? Because everybody's experience matters within the community of Christ. Uh, another example, if we're talking about a single mother, I think about the single mothers a lot during this pandemic. How many, or single uh, fathers, excuse me, for that matter, the ones who are trying to hold a job and suddenly need to be homeschooling their kids, they're under the stress of finances, of making it all work, of holding down a job, etc. They don't have the same freedom that we, I, do as somebody who has older kids, flexible job, and a spouse with a flexible job who can make things happen. And so when we're talking about a single mom, like what, what would happen if we were talking about the experience of this last year in COVID and we were honoring her by saying that what well, she's done as a single mom through this, or are we throwing on that label to point out the primary thing about her outside of that context? This is my sister in Christ, and I want to love her and help her in any way I can. So really, it, 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 the labels we put, they can matter, like they did in the New Testament, but it, we have to ask ourselves, what's our motivation in picking what it is that we're labeling about the truest things about a person? Because at the end of the day, when we're here together as the church, the truest thing about us is that we're children of God. And so I come to this verse that we know well, we've heard a lot, and I want to just point out something really important in it. So the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Galatia, and they were trying to live out what it meant to be a church of believers together, men and women, very different culture, remember, men and women, slaves and free people in a society that had a lot of rules around status and where you fell, things like gender and your free freedom or slave status mattered. And whether you were a Jew or a Greek or what, what nationality you were, all these things mattered. And here's this mess of people trying to figure out how to do, to be church together. And Paul says these famous words, for you are all children of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. We've mistook this 
before, or I should say, I've heard this miscommunicated before. This whole, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, can sound like, hey, none of that matters. Forget those points of difference. But that's not what this is saying. It does not undo your personhood. The difference and the the, uh, particularities of who you are as an individual. It doesn't mean difference doesn't matter. The slave listening to this, if that was the case, it was like, no, it doesn't matter anymore. No, no, it doesn't matter what you are. Nobody sees it anymore. The slave would have been like, yeah, right. I'm going to leave this fellowship of believers and my life isn't going to change. The woman would have been like, I don't even, I don't have a place to make that make sense in this culture. I don't even know what that means. So it's, it's not that your place changed overnight. It's how are you to operate within the family of God? And this statement would have been an absolute mic drop, especially for those in culture's position of status. Because what this said wasn't that it doesn't matter. It says, lay it down. If you've got the power in this culture, lay it down. Because your status is no longer what it's about. You can no longer hold gender, race, social standing over against another because of your family now. You can't hold it like that anymore. The male Roman master honoring the voice of a younger female slave, a faithful Jew honoring the voice of somebody who was a pagan months ago. This was crazy talk, beautiful talk, game-changing talk where It wasn't that those points of differentiation didn't matter anymore in the world. It meant that in this culture, we are going to hold you up as your primary identity. You're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. That's what's first. It's not that your personhood, gender, race, et cetera, it's not that that doesn't matter. It's that it can no longer be used to measure your worth or anybody else's worth around you. Anybody else who is walking through those doors to learn more about Jesus. Because it doesn't change. Those points of differentiation are still there, but they're no longer able to be measures of worth in your eyes or in the eyes of the church gathered in the name of Jesus. Because those aren't the primary things in the eyes of Jesus. Beth Felker Jones, who wrote Practicing Christian Doctrine, I I quote her sometimes because I think she just says things in a beautiful way. God is the God of all people and all nations, and the Spirit loves those peoples and nations, uniting us as one while also loving and preserving our diversity. But at the same time, we are one body. We know that too. And so when we take Paul's analogy, you know, he he talks about can can the body operate without, without the foot or without the hand? We can't give hierarchy to certain parts. We need the whole body. Well, I want you to think about what happens when one part of your body is hurting. I get teased in my house because I... When I stub my toe, I don't know. I have sensitive toes or something. It's like the most tragic thing ever if I've stubbed my toe. But if your toe is really stubbed and hurt, it's like your whole body stops everything. It's, I'm hurting. This little member, I broke my baby toe once. My whole body wanted to just stop the world. My littlest member is hurting. Stop everything. That's why that analogy is so compelling. 
It matters because every part of the body of Christ, wherever they stand, whatever their backdrop, whatever their status or anything from before, when they hurt, when the news is uh, going, showing violence against one people group, you're hurting, I'm hurting. I may not have a shared experience, but when you're hurting, I'll stop everything because a part of my body hurts. I give honor to that wounded part of my body. I give priority. I center, it's healing, don't I? If there's a part that's hurting, that becomes the part that I want to nurture back to health or just give time and space to, it gets priority. We've talked about this before when we talk about being a community, a body together. One of the things that happens often in churches is you welcome somebody in in our, in our desire to become radically hospitable. We talk about welcoming somebody in and we say, welcome to us. You can be with us now. But what if we say instead, welcome. We get to be a new us because you're part of us now. What do we change? What do we get to learn? Uh, uh, Christina Cleveland, what's the piece about God that, that your culture knows that I couldn't know without you? What is that piece? We get to be a new us with every new you who comes in because we're learning together. We can't be us without you. Again, from Beth Felker Jones, in a world of racism, elitism, classism, and nationalism, that's an awful list, my note, that's talking about false identities that the world is trying to say. The most important thing is what country you're from or what, what class you are, what you do, etc. Okay, so those are all yucky words for the world's false identities. Okay. In a world full of those things, the universal church is a witness that embodies a reality wherein all tribes and peoples and languages, Revelation 7, 9, are truly welcome as members of the household of God. Welcome in the unity of a church that will treasure particularity and difference. That means I will treasure the pieces of you that make you, you, Samaritan woman, at the well, each of those pieces of phrases mean something about that person. They tell us things about what culture said about her. What does it look like when Jesus walks up to her and says, I value you with your particularities. I see them, I don't pretend they're not there, but none of that is the thing that matters more than me giving you living water, Jesus says to her. So what does it look like? God has chosen to work in the world through the broken and holy reality of the church. Beth goes on to say, that means that church, I promised you throughout this series, we're going to go from individual to collective. Church gets to be the place that lives out Imago Dei, image of God in every individual with all their particularities. We get to say that we're rooted in the truest thing about ourselves and about you, the truest thing about you. So we honor the truest thing about you, more so than your addiction, than your past, than anything. What we honor about you is you're making, you're made in the image of God and your identity maybe has been marred on your path to finding Jesus. Maybe the world marred your identity and said other things, got priority over that, but we as the broken holy church get to speak truth of identity over someone. Every man, woman, and child made in God's image. 
I love this moment. Speaking of speaking identity over somebody, and we're going to do a little creative imagination game. We're not going to go all the way into being uh, like into a heresy or anything, but we are going to take a little liberty with a story for a minute. In Mark 8, we hear the familiar story when John, uh, excuse me, Jesus is walking with some of his disciples, and he asks them, "Who do people say I am?" He's asking. So, what, what's my primary identity that people are speaking about me? What is my truest identity? Who do people say I am? And they answer, uh, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say you're a prophet. And Jesus says, but who do you say I am? What's the primary thing you would say about me? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. Now, Peter says that, and he's spoken a big truth. He goes on to get it wrong. We don't really blame Peter. He didn't get yet what that meant. Okay, but Peter goes on, and we can tell his story another day. But Peter has spoken a truest thing. Even if he doesn't get totally right what that means, he's spoken the truest thing about Jesus, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. So here's where we're going to take get a little creative license here. I'd love to think about that situation reversed. What if we were standing in a conversation with Jesus? Change it around and name not only for yourself. Maybe today you need to think, what is the identity I need to own for myself? But maybe it's somebody else. Maybe you need to look at what Jesus thinks about that identity of that person that you just are holding in the judgment seat right now, if we're really honest with ourselves. We, most of us, have people sitting in our judgment seats a lot. So... Think about that person or for yourself. And just let's just take this moment and think, what would it look like if you sat there and said, if Jesus asked, like, who, who are you? I'd start right up with my list, right? I, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm a teacher. I'm, I'm a, a wife. I'm, I'm responsible, but sometimes I'm not, and I forget things. I'm forgetful sometimes. I, I, I get a little scatterbrained. Um, I like to, I would just go on about all these things about me if Jesus said, who, who are you? They said, but, but what's the truest thing? I would love to look at Jesus in response and say, who do you say I am? Because do you know what you would hear in response? What about that person that you hold in the judgment seat? What if they could ask Jesus as they're sitting there in their halfway house or on the street corner and just ask Jesus, who do you say I am? Do you know what Jesus would answer? We're going to do a little exercise. I'm going to give you guys a couple minutes as Chris is going to take us through some of the answers that are true over you. Scripture tells us the truest thing about you. I actually got this from a book called The Truest Thing About You. These are lists of things that are the truest things about you. When you think of the person whose identity has been marred by the world, ask Jesus, who do you say they are? If your primary identity over yourself is marred, we just ask Jesus, who, who do you say I am? We're going to take a minute. I want you to just soak in these statements because this isn't Melissa anymore. This is the Lord through Scripture speaking truth over you, primary identity. Who do you say I am, Jesus? Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.